Welcome to the Cascade Church Portland podcast. We're a church that works to be both safe to be and safe to grow through our commitment to intentionality, diversity, curiosity, prayer, and advocacy. Enjoy! I'm one of the other pastors here. I'm often downstairs hanging out with kiddos. And so I'm just relieved that I don't think I have to tell anyone in here today to like sit down or to stay seated or like snack time's not yet. Just hold your horses there, buddy. You know, that moment. I'm just grateful to be with all of you today. It's great to see you. Um, We're continuing on 1 John. So if you've been with us, you know we've been working on the 1 John series. Um, We're on 1 John 4 this morning. So if you'll go ahead, if you are someone that really likes a visual reference to see it, um, I'm going to pull out quotes of it. But if you want to see the whole chapter, go for it. You can pull out your phone or whatever you want to do if you have a Bible, one of you that has a Bible in here. Um, Yeah, you can do it that way too. So um, context... So I've had a lot of hip struggles in the last year of my life. Specifically, I spent a lot of time with physical therapies um, and with a physical therapist. And so um, most recently, um, and when I say a lot of time, like I go a lot during the week. So just never hurt your hips. That's what I have to say about that. Just never hurt them, okay? So um, I was at physical therapy last week, and my physical therapist, who was lovely, I adore her, she um, threw me onto the, not threw me, literally, but we went onto the stair stepper. So if you've been on the stair stepper, like, those are, like, I don't know if you've done those recently. Yeah, you know what I'm saying here. Like, they get you huffing and puffing quickly, and even quicker if you had hip surgery three weeks ago, okay? So um, she throws me on the little steps thing over here, and she's like, hey, Sarah, I wanted to talk to you about a few things. And I was like, oh, yeah, sure, whatever. She's like, I want to talk about God. I was like, oh, yeah, that's Okay. And so I'm, like, trying to act not winded as I'm, like, yeah, we're, we're doing this, huh? Okay. And she's, like, yeah, well, you know, I've never seen a woman pass. And I'm, like, shocker. Okay. And uh, then she's, like, yeah, I wanted to talk to you about um, love. And I was, like, oh, okay. And she's, like, I was wondering why is it that Christians don't live by God is love? And I was, like, how long are we stair-stepping for? I don't have probably a long enough time period to explain this. So we quickly, I was like, yeah, okay, uh, it's important. Moral of the story is, is that basically I walked away from that conversation and one was like, are you reading my diary? Because that's what I'm preaching on this week. And two I sat there and I was astounded by how many people know the phrasing or the Bible passage that God is love. Like, why is that the thing that people know? And how are we living in response? And I was completely convicted. Like, oh, this is, this is today, huh? We're doing this. So that's what we're talking on this morning is we're talking on the passage, 1 John 4, which is all about love, right? Which as an Enneagram 2 just delights me fully. But the first chunk is about not love at all. Right, And what's funny is that when I was reading through the passage, I actually was joking with Kurt, and I said, like, could I just skip the first chunk and get to the second part, which is actually more interesting? And he was like, yeah, pastors do that all the time. They just grab a verse, and that's all they talk about, right? I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't want to do that. But I think that the first chunk, the context of it is really important in order to understand the second. 
So the first piece, if you're with me, is 1 John 4, 1. It says, dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, if you've been with us in other weeks, you know we've talked about false prophets. You know that there's a lot of conversation about the Antichrist. I was raised Presbyterian. So if you start talking to me about false prophets, antichrist, any of those words, it gets a little like woo-woo for me. Like I'm like, where are we going, huh? Like I'm just going to hold on for this ride because it makes me nervous because I never know where someone's going when they're talking about it. So I want to pause and talk about like who is John talking about. So the antichrist, first thing to define. Uh, when Scott was here two weeks ago, he talked about the antichrist being anything that separates us from the father or the son. Right? When Kurt talks about the Antichrist, he talks about the antithesis of God. And I want to merge the two definitions when I talk about the Antichrist. I want to talk about someone who's denying the Father and Son by doing so as being the opposite of God. That's the antithesis. So, example, if I say God is love, and then you're super hateful, or someone comes out and is super terrible, I would say that's the opposite of what I know God to be, and in the process is denying who Jesus and God is. So that makes sense what I'm looking for in Antichrist? And I think what's complex, right, is we know that um, both, uh, actually Donald Trump and Obama, Obama, they've both been called the Antichrist, right? That's the example Scott gave, which made me laugh, because you know how hard it is to find a picture of them together? It's fascinating. Anyways, so... They've both been called the Antichrist, but I think that that makes it very like this party or this party. It makes it very extreme. And when I was reading more about what it actually means to be the Antichrist, I think it's much more vague. Does that make sense? I think it's much more, much more about being something kind of discreet. So the Antichrist in my best Sarah Schwarzenegger definition is more about a combination of uh, Sirius Black from Harry Potter, Darth Vader, and Voldemort. And I intentionally want that combination. So why I think that these, each character is important and rather stylish when we see them all up there together is that I see Voldemort and Darth Vader as complex characters who are mostly bad, right? But we get this glimpse of something different, right? There are moments where I'm actually team Darth Vader, right? Like I'm like, come on, you can do this. Like you can take a turn towards good. Nope, you just killed him. Okay, cool, 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 right? Or like Voldemort, like we see him have this really painful childhood story if you like Harry Potter, right? And you're like, please don't end up being the bad guy. Please don't like take a turn towards the best. And like, nope, he's real bad, right? Real bad. And then Sirius Black, my brother-in-law and I were just talking about this. We like Sirius Black because you think that he's mostly bad, and then all of a sudden you see someone good, right? If you've read the Harry Potter series, you're not sure for a while if he's going to be good or bad. This is what I think the Antichrist is, right? I think the Antichrist is much less of this, like, black or white issue of, like, it's very clear something. Does that make sense? I think it's much more complex. Right, so that's the Antichrist, right? When we talk about John, the Antichrist. And then we move on to, like, these conversations about prophets. Right? And false prophets specifically. Now, what becomes really tricky about prophets is we have to go back to who's speaking. Right? So John, we're in 1 John. Spoiler, it's John who's right, is our author. And I want you to imagine the, the early churches has kind of different church planting models. So as a church planter, this really sticks out to me. So you've got John's communities, 
right? But then you also have like Paul's communities. So this is like, you've got Willow Creek and you've got Saddleback. Like you've got these different church models of how do you start a church, right? And John's model is different than Paul. But when we talk about like the Acts 2 church and the early church and the first church, right? Who's the person you think of? Paul. You're usually talking about Paul, right? But this is John, and this is John's church communities. And I think it's really important to keep in mind, there are multiple people out there planting churches and starting churches, false prophets. Like, why is he even worried church? And why is he so concerned about the Antichrist and false prophets? Like, why is he even worried about those topics? So John's communities would have been 20 to 30 people. So I want you to imagine that, like, John's communities are like, you know, we just want to start something small, and intimate, and vulnerable, and transparent, and real, right? And so they start this house church, right, of like 20, 30 people, and they're meeting, and there's no one that's actually in charge, right? It would be John, but there's no person that specifically has leadership. So maybe there's like a co-pastor or something, right? I'm making fun of myself now. <laughs> like, so they're like, I'm going to come in, and I'm going to start this new and organic thing, and but no one's going to be in charge of it, and so we're going to have to, like, figure out how to do leadership, but it's going to work. It's going to work great. Like, it's not going to be complex at heart. That's John's communities, Right, so he's writing to his church plant community of 20 to 30 people that there's no true authority in that room. And they're trying to figure out the best that they can together. Right? How do we do this? How do we do? Right? And Paul, on the flip side, you can imagine he's talking about false prophets as well. John talks about false prophets. So does Paul. Paul's talking about it as a role in the church. That makes sense? When John's talking about false prophets in the Antichrist, he's talking about people who have been in his church communities and then opted to leave. Right? So he's talking about people that they're very close to. These aren't just anyone that he's talking to in that first chunk. He's talking about our friends that we thought we were starting this church with who all of a sudden don't want to be here. They feel like the Spirit of the Lord is doing something else. Right? And then they've maybe gone rogue a little bit, like they've gone a little bit Darth Vader on us, and they are saying something different, something really different than what we believe. Right? And if you think about it that way, this isn't just like unrelatable as a church planner. When people leave, it hurts. Right? Like we try really hard to like put on all your protection of like, I'm not gonna make it personal, but this is the right thing for you. It still hurts. Does that make sense? So if you imagine John's writing from a place of pain about people who've gone a little bit rogue out of their community and they're trying to figure out who's a true prophet and who's not. Now, if you're like me as well, you say prophet, I'm like, I'm out, see ya. Because I'm concerned when someone's talking about prophet, the next thing you're gonna start telling me is like how like we're gonna have a revival in Portland or something stressful and I don't know what's gonna happen next. And I'm like, I'm gonna slowly sneak out. Like I bet women won't be invited, so I'm good. So like, that's what I think of when I say prophet. And so what, I, what happened is actually a couple years ago, Kurt and I got invited to this event and was poet, prophet, pastor. And I was sitting in this room with a bunch of people who I believe to be like Instagram prophets, right? Which maybe you have, you know who these people are, but like really incredible people who are talking about God, but they're doing it in a social media platform. So maybe they're talking really loudly about issues like race or immigration or women. Like there's, they're here having conversations in a totally different way than they ever have. And I was sitting with like 
amazing people, authors, and people who speak and do these amazing things, poets, right? And I was sitting there and thinking, these are completely prophets today in 2018. Like, these are totally the people that I need to nudge me and push me to get me somewhere else, right? And understanding who God is. And I need those prophets. I need those voices of justice. I need that person. And I'm like, oh, that was challenging. Let me keep reading. Right? And so when I think about 2018 and do we have prophets, if you're like me, you're like, I'm out. Right? Stay with me. Try. Like, are there ways that there have been prophetic voices, loud voices, right? And maybe you just say as like an author, say it a different word that's less triggering. Right? Is there someone that you've heard you're like, oh, yeah. Right? I think about like in 2000, Right? We, <laughs> I remember I was at a friend's house for New Year's. I don't know if you remember what people were saying that year, but there was some suspicion that the world might end, right? See this news article right here. And I remember I was with this friend's mom, and I was like, oh, we're having a good time. It's New Year's, blah dee da And then she starts filling up the bathtub. And I'm like, this is weird. Are we going to all sit in the bathtub? Like, what's happening here? And she was like, no, the world might end. And just in case, I want to have enough water. And I was like, I think we got bigger issues if the world ends tonight. But okay, cool, 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 cool. Right? And so, right, there's been times we've had these prophetic voices that maybe seemed a little out there. Right, we've got um, Joseph Smith over here. He is the man who said that he was a prophet and that he was told to start the Mormon religion, right? I mean, you can go in depth in that better. But, right, we've had prophets. He's like one of the most successful 24 religious people I've ever met, right? Like, he started a religion at 24. That's remarkable, right? We've got other voices, right, prophetic voices like Tarana Burke, Right, Tarana, she actually is the person that starts the Me Too movement, but in a different way. Right, so she actually starts working in schools, like doing the really hard work, right, and is advocating and doing all of that work long before the hashtag ever comes about. So then Alyssa Milano, the actress that uses the hashtag Me Too, right, is actually talking about Tarana's work. Incredible, right? We've seen prophetic voices all the time. That's why I think it's so important to acknowledge what social media does and different platforms. Like, where are prophetic voices? Because they're around. They're influencing us. What makes us go one direction or not? Right? Who nudges us? Who gets us there? It's a fascinating statement. Like, who are your prophetic voices in 2018? Who influences you? Who makes you go from being stagnant to making movement? Right? And then... Um, I think what's tricky, though, is that sometimes we believe that there are prophetic voices, and we may feel very differently about what those voices are, right? And so I think that's why the God is love part, we're about to get there, is my favorite part. It's critical. It's critical in order to understand kind of the first chunk as well. They go together, right? Because right now, let's say, so um, there are people, right, trying to come over the border. Hot topic. Not trying to make you angry, right? But there's this debate over, can we bring in these refugees? And some might say, right, a prophetic voice might say, we need to go help them get across the border, right? Others might say, no. Helping them is to keep them there and to do this the proper way. Go through the asylum period. Like, do, do what we need to do to legally get them across the border. Does that make sense? And we would both open the same Bible, and we would both talk about the same God, right? And we would say, 
the same, we would come up with different reasoning. Does that make sense? Like we come up with very prophetic things two opposite ways using the same book all the time. It's very complex. So how do we discern in our communities? How do we decide who we're listening to and who we're not listening to? All right, and this is where I go to my Quaker friends. So my Quaker friends, what they do is that when they believe that God is moving or they're hearing a prophetic voice or something's happening, they sit in a room together and they say, where do we think the spirit of God is moving this community? Like, what do we think? And then they talk about it, right? So they're talking about issues. They're talking about politics. They're talking about theology. They're talking about lots of things. But it's a group of people doing their best to discern together what's God doing. It's fascinating. How do we discern prophetic voices in 2018? But then we get to the best part, right? We get to move on and we get to talk about love. So if we skip to verse 7, it says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not or does not love does not know God, because God is love. Right? That's what my physical therapist was talking about, verse 7. She could quote it. God is love. Now, what's fascinating is in the Greek, right, we know that it translates a little bit different in English. And so in the Greek, it's God love is. And I actually really like both versions, like God is love and God love is. Like, it makes me stop for a second and be like, what what does he mean? What is John trying to say? He's just been talking about all these prophetic voices. Why then is he so concerned to a hurting community who people are leaving that God is love? Why is that the thing he comes back with, right? And if you think about it, if you describe like mom or dad, you wouldn't say mom or dad is love, right? That's not a sentence that makes sense. So this is a really specific sentence on purpose that doesn't fully make sense about God is love, right? And we know that if we talk about love and the complexity of love, right? In Greek, there's three different kinds of love. This is agape love. This would be like a really deep-seated love, a really complex, a really, like, just this challenging level of love. And that is what he's talking about. So he goes on and he talks about that God is the source of love, if you keep paraphrasing through what's happening. Then it's Jesus died on the cross. And then in return, we have to love others, right? So I think what's fascinating is he's asking them to go from an individualistic view of love. God loves you. God is love, right? He died on the cross to loving other people. He's moving from individualistic to a more community-focused viewpoint, right? If you think about he's writing to his community, and therefore he's talking to everyone and how they're interacting with each other, as well as when he's saying that you need to love other people, he's talking about the people that have just hurt his community, right? He's specifically saying you ought to love, right, which is a fascinating challenge in that context, what he's trying to say to them. Right, and we just, we know that love is complex and it's tricky, right? We've got dating apps, right? Some of you pop up for the dating apps. You're like, oh, what is she going to say about dating apps, right? There's like lots of ways to talk about love. You've got poets who have attempted, right? You've got songs. You've got things all over, like what is love? We've tried to define this over and over and over again. What does it mean to love, right? We might all land different places of when we describe love, like what is it that we're trying to hit on? Right, I was, I was recently asking this last week. I was trying to ask people, like, what's your experience that you understood this, like, God is love? Like, what's your closest real-life experience that you've had? Like, what is that moment for you? 
And I was going back to this memory in high school. Um, when I was a senior in high school, I, uh, I lived, so my parents and I, we lived in Forest Grove. So if you've been out in Forest Grove, windy roads, struggle's real when you're 17 years old and trying to learn how to drive, right? And they've actually improved those roads quite a bit. And so they were like even narrower than they are right now. And so um, I was supposed to go and drive and get my senior pictures. Like, I distinctly remember. It was very exciting. And I think our, the photographer was, like, in Newburgh, McMinnville. I don't know. Point being, I had to go more back roads. Does that make sense? And it was a downpour of a day, like a terrible, terrible day. And I remember my mom asking me to go get them before I had musical practice. And um, what she said to me was, like, but be really careful because my mom's an insurance agent. So <laughs> keep this in mind. Like, the roads are going to be really slippery. I was like, yeah, 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 Mom, I'm, I'm good. I won't crash the car. So guess what I did? I was driving back, and I distinctly remember it being, like, I couldn't even see out the window, so, like, your windshield wipers are going back and forth, and I remember I took this pretty steep curve, and when I took the curve, a semi-truck came, it, like, came into my lane, and we were going to have a head-on collision, like, of, like, if I was telling you my side of it. That's what I thought happened as a 17-year-old, and so, uh, I made my best decision at that point to go into the ditch, and so I did. I intentionally threw my car into the ditch so I didn't get hit, hit head on. And at 17, I thought my life had just ended, right? Because, <laughs> like, literally it was terrifying. I wasn't sure if I was ever going to drive again. I think my hands shook, for, like, for a solid hour afterwards. It felt really scary. And then um, I didn't know necessarily the status of the car, and I couldn't get it out because it was really, really thick mud. I had put it into a field, basically, and kind of a spin move. And um, in the process, I locked my keys in my car and my little cell phone, like classic, and could not get any of my things. And so uh, the semi did not stop, which was part of the really painful part of it, but many other cars did. And so when someone got me their cell phone, I remember calling my parents and thinking, at this point, I didn't know if my car had been totaled or what I had just done, but my older sister had never been in a car accident, and I'm about to call my insurance agent mom and confess what I've just done to our car. And it, it really felt traumatic. Like, I can't afford to buy another car. They've been really kind. I'm such a failure. Like, I just really remember thinking, Sarah, why do you always have to be the screw-up kid? <laughs> like, why couldn't Beth have done that? Not me. And so I remember calling my parents, and I remember saying, I'm okay, but I did this thing. And I remember them interrupting me and saying, Sarah, we don't care about the car. All we care about is if you're okay. Are you okay? And I have to tell you, I've gone back to that moment so many times because I kept trying to tell my parents the details of the car. Like, I was like, yeah, 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 I'm fine. And then I would be like, but mom, the car? And she's like, I don't care about the car. Please stop talking about the car. Like, are you okay? What needs to happen? And that, for me, was like best parenting moment of the year. Right? It was like that moment where I understood what God is love. So what is that moment? Like, I, I need you to help me understand. Like, I want to take you there. What are we talking about when we say God is love? What is John trying to say to this community? 
right? And then we go on. We go on to a bunch of other pieces about God's love. And I think the critical part that I want us to know is that in verse 12, if we can pull that up, I think I have it. Yeah. So no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We talk all about how, like, there has to be God's love. It, multiple times it says, you haven't seen God, but it still lives. It still exists. Right? And that's where we get this collision of concepts. Right? We see this love that we cannot see. There's no proof of it. Right? But yet we know it exists and is real. Does that make sense? And then John's acting, asking a community to act based on something they cannot see. Right? And what I love about that is there's this collision of concepts. So Richard Rohr calls that the apophatic and the cataphatic. Right, so you've got these two concepts. So apophatic is when you cannot, we're going to pull it up on here so that it's easier if you're someone that needs to be able to see it to learn it. So apophatic is someone that, um, it's when it's in the mystery. So this is like a Genesis, Jewish scriptures. Like if you understand God through walking in nature, like you can't really explain it and you're good with the questions. Right? This is like the love that like we don't, we don't have a lot of absolutes on. And then cataphatic would be like we have clear symbols, we have clear signs. Right? Like God told me this or whatever that thing or like God showed up in this way for me. Like those are the things, that Jesus dying on the cross. Like those are the concepts that we're talking about, like clarity. So when we talk about that these collide, I'm saying that the unseen and the seen love, they collide together in this passage, which I think is incredibly powerful. Because it says to me that there's room for anyone who believes in a God that shows up and a God that you're like, I don't understand you 90% of the time. Right? And I, I love that because they come together and they have to work off each other. What I find fascinating is it's Christmas time. Right? And Christmas time has been something that many of us have really clung to. And part of the reason I think many of us cling to Christmas or maybe reject Christmas, right, is there's a clarity about an experience of a child being born. Right? I'm, I'm not a mom, but my friends have been moms. Right? And I've held their kids and I've looked at them and I've watched the process of like their bellies growing and just the excitement and the preciousness in that moment. Right? We've, many of us have seen a friend or someone we know go through that process. That's a clear symbol. Does that make sense? And so when we read about a Jesus being born, that's one of the only relatable parts about Jesus. Right? Jesus dying on a cross, there's tons of mystery to that story. That's not a clear understanding symbol. Many of us have not seen someone die on a cross. Right? But if you're talking about a symbol a cataphatic God, a clear sign, that would be like the birth. And so Christmas time feels like this perfect moment to talk about, like, what kind of a God do you need? Do you need a God that shows up in the mystery? Do you need a God that shows up in really clear signs and symbols? And I think that those interchange. I don't think we're ever one or the other. I think that's a continual process that we're going through. Right, I told you, I've had, like, major chronic pain this year with hips. And I've had two hip surgeries. It's like the year of hip pain, right? And, like, it is no joke. Like, it hurts so bad. And when things hurt so bad, if you've been in a really dark place, like, you know you always need a mysterious God. Right? When I'm begging at night, like, please, Lord, like, let this go away. Please let this stop hurting. Let me work tomorrow. Right? I don't want a God who just, like, doesn't show up. I want a God who's, like, right there. Like, I want all of the tricks and all the things. 
right? And then there are others of us that were like, I don't, like, if you come to me and you tell me, like, God's with you, God's present, and you're hurting and you're in a dark space, that may not be helpful. You're like, actually, for the first time in my life, I don't need an absolute God. I need a God that I don't get. Does that make sense how these work together? And I think what's tricky is that we come to other people with the God that we need right then. Right? So I show up and I'm like, let me show you my absolute God. And you're like, no thanks, I'm good. Right? Or you're like, but there's so many great mysteries about God. And if you tell me that in the middle of like a pain muscle spasm moment, I'd be like, uh-uh. Like, I need a God who's going to show up now. <laughs> like, I ache. So I think that's the complexity of God and the love that we see, and also a God that is so full of mystery. So how does this go together? Right? I think we have to know who our voices are. Who are the prophetic people? Where does the Antichrist exist? Like, who are voices that are going against God? And then we have to have these communities that John's talking about to be able to know and push and continue to go. Because if you say to me, God is love, and this means X, Y, and Z, I don't want to be deciding that by myself, right? Because I won't get it right every time. Sometimes other people bring things forward and they're like, yeah, that might be like where God's love is going. And what about also this? Does that make sense? So you need the prophetic voice. You need the person nudging and pushing. You need the conversations about who are the prophets, who are the people that are seeing things that I can't even see yet. They're pushing me. They're nudging me in directions. And then in return, is this love... Can we see it? Is there a symbol? Right? Where is God's love showing up? Because God is love is a powerful statement. It's an incredibly powerful statement. And if we discern and try to figure that out alone, that just sounds complex. Right? May you know, may you know a God that is love. May you know a God that has love that shows up. May you know a God that has love that's in the mystery. May you be immersed in it all. May we all be in that together. Can I pray for us? And then I'm just going to do it. I, we're going to do it the opposite way, okay? I'm praying for us and we can go. God, we are so grateful. I'm so grateful that you are both a visible and an invisible God. God, I'm grateful for the moments that I needed those prophetic voices to point me in direction. I'm grateful for the times that those prophetic voices have challenged me and told me that God is love and I needed to be louder. God, I thank you for your love, and I thank you for your presence. May we be wrapped in that today. In your name, amen. Have a great Sunday.